Hey there, welcome to the JavaScript Jabber podcast. I'm Chris Ferdinandi. Chuck is out this week, so I'm filling in as host. I am joined by panelists, Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Steve, is it Emmerich? I always screw up your last name, Steve. I'm so sorry. Yep, Emmerich. <laughs> it's the uh, dev dad from sunny Naples, Florida. Awesome. And today we have as a guest, Kaylig, whose last name I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Hi, I'm Kaylig from uh, Cupertino, California. Awesome. And uh, Kaylig, what, um, what are we talking about on today's show? We're talking about design systems and developer tooling around design systems. Awesome. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. For people who don't know who you are, can you tell us just a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, why this topic is interesting to you? I was born in uh, the west of France. Most people listening to this podcast probably know where Normandy is. It's further west of that. I'm a self-taught web developer. I started making a website when I was young and then made it my job in 2012 when I felt like making websites in French was... Uh, bit frustrating. I moved to the UK, ended up at uh, the BBC, then the Guardian, and then the Financial Times. Uh, so lots of media organizations there. And I worked on design systems in multiple occurrences there. Following that, I moved to the US with my dear wife and found a job at Salesforce, where I worked on the Lightning design system, which is also an open source design system. And about two years ago, I moved at Shopify to work on the Polaris design system. Awesome. Awesome. So is Shopify's design system something that's open sourced or is that just something you guys use internally? Yeah, correct. So we have multiple design systems, but the one people know and love is Polaris, which is, uh, you can you found, find it at polaris.shopify.com. It's all of the code is hosted on GitHub. The reason why it's open source is because we have a partner community that is very invested in building applications on the Shopify platform. And we want to give them the ability to open issues, contribute to the code base, give us feature requests, and just even see how it's done so that they build trust towards the component library. Awesome. So before we dive into all the nitty gritty details, just for anybody who's listening who might not know what a design system is, can you maybe at like a high level kind of explain what that's all about? Absolutely. So people listening to the show probably have heard of component libraries. There's a lot of them out there, but the most well-known is Bootstrap. And uh, it happens to be a small part of a design system. If you, if you take it at a higher level, a design system is all of the cultural practices around design and shipping a product from what the words should be in that product to the colors, to 
the spacing grid system and all the patterns, the experience patterns that your users are going to encounter, plus a little bit of guidance on how to achieve that in code. So it's kind of a melting pot of all these things that have to do with design, development, content strategy, uh, and yeah, general user experience stuff. I feel like design systems are kind of like a big buzzword right now. And I mean, I see the value in them, but what do you think has like caused this to be such a popular thing? Is it how we're componentizing our front ends? Is that what it is? I would say a lot of it. You're right. Yep. A lot of it has to do with the shift to components. Design systems existed way before that was a thing. So I would say React probably accelerated the rise of component libraries because it's easy, so easy to think in components in React. You can extrapolate and call that a design system. And some people have a sketch UI kit with all our components or Figma UI kit or you name it. And a React component library that are somewhat in sync and they're just going to call that a design system because it's like it's a few pieces of a design system. So it is definitely a buzzword. It's also misused by a lot of people who think, oh, I just have a sketch file, that's my design system. I don't think I agree with that. I think you need a little bit more to that. Um, I think content strategy, for example, is a big thing that's often overlooked. And um, yeah, it is definitely a buzzword. Yeah. So how much do you think of like design system falls in the realm of a front-end developer versus somebody who is just more, I don't know, like I guess you would call them, I don't know, there's such a fine line between what I would call like a front-end engineer, which to me is somebody who like works on the build and writes a lot of JavaScript. And then I would say more like a front-end like designer or something would, I don't know, front-end developer, somebody who writes like more CSS, like I don't know. I kind of, whenever I think of design systems, I think of more like, just like, it's more of something that a designer would work on, like somebody who just writes CSS. Yeah, it's a super interesting topic because the teams I've seen who are leaning too much towards one or the other discipline are typically very biased in the way they they build and deliver. So if a team, um, if a design systems team is very on the let's say, backend of JavaScript. So more like interested in Webpack and the React internals and all these things. They're going to deliver stuff that's way lower level and not necessarily very design-driven. And then there's teams who are only designers and on the, they are struggling to build that gap between their designs and production. If you want a really successful design system, you need a bit of everyone and they need to communicate a lot and get on the same page decide of a common language. I really like when designers and developers sit down together to think about what the API of components should be. I think that's a really fruitful type of conversation you can have. And if you only have developers or if you only have designers, that's not going to happen very well. And then the the gap between the idea of a designer and what's actually in production is going to be even bigger. So that's kind of my, my take on this. Does that answer your question, Amy? Yeah, I think so. And I I don't know, I guess maybe like where I feel like you're going with this too is kind of like the most successful projects I've worked on. The person who's in charge of design is like very well versed in UX. And that's when like design and dev can work really well together. But now we're kind of deviating away from design systems. So we can circle back around. <laughs> well, you know, 
one thing that would be interesting to explore is what the developer workflow looks like in a design system. I know you actually had that as kind of a, a talking point for this episode. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that and what that looks like. Yeah. So when you build a design system, you you start off by thinking about a few common rules, the language around the design, and then you try to port it to code. And when you start porting it to code, the first few components, it works really well, everyone on the same page. And as you scale, your design systems becomes this behemoth with no one really having a grasp over the entire system. Especially from the code perspective, you have so many components, so many test suites, so many, so much stuff going on that it's impossible for just one person to have a complete architectural overview of literally every detail. And what you end up doing is that you either give up to the chaos, which hopefully uh, doesn't happen in your design system team, but you start building a practice of kind of a DevOps practice in the design systems team where people think a lot about tooling and how we build, not just building stuff and, and churning components, and, but also how do we release? What is the contribution model? What is the path of an idea from the designer's brain to production and what other parts where code and automation can help? And, and that, that goes a lot with, that has a lot to do with the way your stack works, but also your versioning controls works. So if you use GitHub or GitLab or Oroku or your own deployment strategy, this all has a big impact on overall way of building stuff on for your design system. So kind of sort of related, maybe potentially a little bit not. I used to work at a company that um, had about four or five different products that were all under the same product suite. So if you bought into it was like a SaaS company. And if you if you know if you paid for a subscription, you got all these different products, but they were all separate products because they all came in with the exception of one of them through acquisition. It was one of those like we have a core product, we're going to extend it with some other stuff that we acquired from some other companies and stuff. And so we had these four products that had very distinct looks and feel that they were trying to maybe kind of bring together through an internal design system with some components and some shared things, basically trying to eventually migrate everybody over to using the same patterns, even though the products were maintained by different teams. Do you have any experience working in an environment where you need to get a design system adopted by different working teams? And if so, any recommendations around kind of the cultural challenges there? One of the things I found both in a past job and and even in a more recent kind of project I worked on, like getting people to break from this is how we do things today to using this new tool is I've found much harder than the technical logistics of the system itself. It's the, like the cultural change piece. I don't know if you have any experience with that. If not, tell me to shut up and we can move on. But I don't know. I, that, it's something I find really interesting because it's so hard to get people to do things sometimes. So... So at Salesforce, we were exactly in this situation where the design system was mostly built with the lens of what was called uh, Sales Cloud and with a very specific stack. But the decision was made to only build components using HTML and CSS. So they would be portable to any stack out there. And it turns out 
Salesforce has a habit of acquiring companies, especially a few years back where another week, another acquisition was coming kind of thing. And um, they would be um, asked to use the design system. And uh, thankfully, they could pretty easily with just simple CSS classes. That was a good way to evangelize the design system itself, or at least the component library. Uh, now, from a cultural perspective, it's dep it depends so much on the company itself, the politics that govern it. I would say telling developers is not hard, but telling product managers that they are going to have to prioritize that over their original roadmap is a bit of a struggle sometimes. So, yeah, I don't know. That's above my pay grade <laughs> to, yeah, to convince well, these people. I guess another another consideration for me is like, so is there anything, is coming at this from another angle, is there anything about a design system that would make make people want to use it over what they already do today? Or, you know, like when you are building out a design system, how do you ensure that it's going to work for as many folks internally as possible? You know, one of the things I've, I've seen as kind of a resistance to this is, well, you know, your design system is missing these eight things that we need for our product. How do we build those in a way that it actually integrates? It's easier for us to just go do our own thing. Like, forget this, you know, like, so how do you like that kind of thing? Like, what do you, how do you build a system that's complete, flexible for things you haven't thought of, extensible for kind of future use cases, that kind of thing? Yeah, so there's two parts to that question. The first one is, what are the parts of the design system that would convince someone to use it? And that's really down to the culture of the company. Most companies don't have a strong accessibility and performance and CSS culture. Most teams actually kind of are bad at these things. And so they're thankful that the design system, hopefully, if your that was your case but in the design system teams have worked on there was definitely a culture of really good css architecture performance in mind and accessibility first so teams adopting that new framework are extremely thankful they see things they're not good at and all of a sudden it's put on a golden platter for them so they they would instantly like the idea. Now, the second part of your question was more around what are the parts that are missing and how do we build something that is integrating well with this whole ecosystem? This is where the design system needs to have very flexible parts to it so that composability is possible and it's not an all or nothing. You can have some kind of team-specific or product-specific components that can easily be made, easily be built. And to do that, typically you are going to need things like what is the grid system? What is the color palette? What is the typography? So that you can take those little subatomic parts of your design system and take them out, put them into your own components. And the this idea of having subatomic part of your design system, again, colors, spacing, typography, etc., these are called design tokens. Uh, this is a name that was coined by Salesforce, by uh, Gina and John, who worked on the Lightning design system. And it's been growing as an idea be just because of what you were mentioning, so that people don't have an all or nothing situation. They can take just the bits of the design system that's interesting to them and then build the, the components that are missing more easily. Awesome. 
What, um, and I'm sorry for just kind of like rapid fire throwing questions at you, but um, <laughs> this is a topic that I, I always find really interesting. One of the other things that, that kind of comes to mind is, um, and this is, this is maybe a little into the weeds, but like the installation and upgrade process. So you've got a design system, you discover an accessibility issue or a bug how do you make sure that all the people who are using that, you know, like you issue a fix, like, is there some sort of, what are some best practices, I guess, around kind of making sure those, those fixes get deployed to folks who need them, people who are using this project? Is it, is it a CDN? Is it part of like an NPM installation process, something else, some hybrid model? Semantic versioning is super useful in that case. Design systems I've worked on were all deployed to NPM or Bower or some sort of package management system. Sure, and then sure. it, it was up to the, the consumers to upgrade at their own pace. But when there's a hot fix like a security or a big, a really important accessibility fix, those design systems typically have, I would say, maximum a handful, but typically it's one or two main consumers, like main code bases that are capturing the, the most traffic for the company, for example. Um, at Shopify, it's our code base called Shopify Shopify. It's our really big Ruby monolith. And then we have what we call Shopify Web, which is our React layer on top of that. And so we're going to meet, be meeting expectations with them and actually be proactive and push our fixes to them. But most other parts of the company, they just upgrade when, when they want. Yeah, we just, we just count on people to do their due diligence there and, uh, and upgrade as their roadmap allows. So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, I'm also wondering if components help here at all. Like if I'm using hard-coded HTML and like the markup fundamentally needs to change, that's a big kind of system-wide change I need to make. Whereas with a, a component that or like some sort of custom component that bakes in some markup for me, that becomes a little bit less of an issue, potentially. I don't know if, if that's something you guys think of as you do this or you just use components for other reasons. But Yeah, it's 100% what you were saying. So the pros and cons of having um, HTML versus, well, HTML and CSS versus React components or web components is that mm-hmm. if the internals of a component change, People using the HTML version of them have to update all of their class names or even markup structure. And that's a really tough upgrade process. And that's what Salesforce was doing. And now they're moving everything to web components. But it's a, it's a huge company-wide kind of cultural change at this point that we're looking at at Shopify as well. But at Shopify, we took the, the component road and so we ship React components and we have a fallback for people who still want to use our HTML and CSS, but this is not something we support. Like it's kind of a fallback. It's, you're kind of on your own at this point. We don't even give you release notes on what class names changed or whatever. It's yeah. Here's a fallback. It's it's nice of us kind of thing to to provide it, but the upgrade path is not going to be as clear as with React components. Whereas at React Components, it's so much better. We can even issue console logs. So we have a format for console logs that we follow that tells you this is deprecated. Uh, in the next version, we're going to remove it. Uh, in the meantime, you should replace this with that. And so the developer in their 
console, they can actually see what they need to change for their code to upgrade better so that the next big major version is not going to completely break their code. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So I want to ask a question. This is kind of steering away again from design systems, but you said that you're moving to web components. So are you going to be using React alongside web components? Or are you slowly like moving away from React completely in favor of web components? How do web components fit in? So we're starting an initiative internally. It's very early days. We're not, this is not on the roadmap, like 100% sure we're moving to web components, but we want to be prepared in case we want to make that switch and we want to see what what is the the opportunity that we, we might be missing i would say that currently the developer workflow and the developer tooling around react is so good that it's hard yeah. for us to imagine moving to web components now also there's a lot of unanswered questions with web components when it comes to accessibility or server side rendering and uh, state yeah. management. Yeah, it's really, really tough. Because this was actually something that came up where I work and kind of sounds like a lot of the same things that y'all are experiencing and questions that y'all had are the same questions that I had. So that was interesting to me. But, yeah, uh, but I would encourage design systems teams to at least keep that keep that on the back burner. And we tend to use Hack Days for that purpose to do a quick exploration of what would our most representative components look like if we were building them with the with web components in mind. Awesome. Thanks. When you're going through the process of making this design system, what kind of tooling do you use? Like I knew you uh, sketch and then yeah. CSS. Do you, do you have like um, testing frameworks you recommend or anything like that, depending on the framework you want to go with? Yeah. So for the developer workflow, if you're using React, I think Storybook is a really good place to to build stuff. Um, it's got hot reloading. You can see the list, the entire list of your components. It's got really good tooling around it. So, for example, you can get live accessibility check of your component. And Storybook happens to be plugging in with a lot of cloud providers to, for example, do visual regression testing between versions or between. One of my favorite things is when you open a pull request uh, in Polaris, you automatically get the a deployment of that storybook that anyone looking at the pull request can, can click. And we get automated visual regression testing as well. And I love that because it just gives us a list of, hey, these are the pixels that changed across the entire component library. It makes developers way more confident in the changes they're shipping. 
that when they change the button, it changes exactly those other components and that you didn't forget anything. So that's kind of the, the kind of like basics I would recommend. And aside from that, we use, you know, the classics, ESLint with a ton of custom configs so that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to rendering methods and just random component life cycles, best, best practices. We also have a lot of accessibility ESLint roles enabled. What can I think of? And other than that, we use Jest and Enzyme for testing components and internals of components. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking about mostly. Cool. Yeah, I've used Storybook a little bit. It's pretty neat. When you go through the process of making this design system, how do you kind of start and work your way towards the actual building of the components? Like if I wanted to make one for my company, what what would be the best way to start it? I would say it depends if you already have set of components in your code base. Um, If so, just install Storybook, create a few stories, and there you go. You have a component library that you can show designers. And then designers will know, oh, so that's what's in production. That gives them some sort of inventory and you can have a conversation, sit down with the design team and discuss what parts should be fixed and what parts should make it from the code base into their designs because sometimes there's a discrepancy, but when you don't have a design system between production and their design files, and that's kind of what this this might fix to have this conversation, showing them everything that's in production. It, a lot of design teams actually start like that. They go in the product and they take a ton of screenshots and they look at, I mean, it's a UI inventory, basically. And they go around and they look at all the inconsistencies. And typically you're going to find three, four different modals, 10 different buttons, (laughs) all that kind of stuff is just buried in the code and they don't have visibility on it. So giving them that visibility, if you can, is great. And the the whole goal of this is to be on the same page with everyone in in, in between UX and between engineering. And so that's kind of where I would start to have a discussion with designers. Sounds good. Do you think there's a a role for... A, a person to be that kind of mediation between the designer and the actual developer of the components? Or is it should it just be like a conversation between the two of them? From what I've seen, it is a role that's often taken by people who have a sense of engineering, but are also kind of designers. So either designers who code or coders who design a bit, they can talk to both parties with all the confidence that's needed to make that happen. Not everyone is lucky to have this happen in a official capacity. So you see a lot of uh, skunk works kind of projects that are emerging by just the fact that people are super passionate about this and just make it happen. (laughs) How do you prioritize feature development? So obviously this is not like a one and done kind of thing. The product the design system will evolve with the organization and that sort of thing. So just kind of from an operations perspective, how do you, you know, how do you figure out what to focus on next with the design system, how to evolve it, when to maybe even deprecate features that are no longer relevant or useful? Like what does that process look like? Are you talking in terms of product features versus taking care of the design system or are you talking about like inside the design system? The components, yeah, components okay, gotcha. the design system itself. You know, like we didn't have 
we didn't have accordions, but we need them now because, you know, team X that uses this product is asking for them. Or we've noticed a lot of people who use it have kind of hacked their own into it. So we should come up with something standardized, like that sort of thing. Yeah, that's actually a very good indicator. (laughs) If people have been hacking this together too many times and it's maybe not accessible or just repeated effort on lots of testing required and duplicated, that's not good. So obviously that's a a very good indicator that your team should probably think about integrating it into the design system. Let me think. Do you ever deprecate features? Like, have you ever seen that happen in a design system where a component goes away? Uh, Yes, not components, but mostly props, yes, or types. What drives that? So what's behind the decision to remove something that was previously there? There's two things. There's one, which is technologically, you want to move on from one way of doing things to another. So for example, when React came up with hooks, we decided that our roadmap should include moving everything to hooks. So we're still in the process of doing that. And we just released Polaris React v4, and it sets us up for success with hooks and the future of what React will look like. Now, that meant that we had to (laughs) prioritize moving all our code to hooks instead of component classes in many places. And that meant that we had less time to build new components or to do other things like supporting existing consumers. The other reason why you might want to do a deprecation is there's just a different need. Recently, one of our dependencies changed drastically and we had to adapt to to the way Shopify does things now in that that realm. So You mentioned the thing about not deprecating components. So the design system runs any danger of kind of over bloating itself over time. I think about like you mentioned bootstrap at the very start here, you know, like, like bootstrap foundation, they become these like just these behemoths over time where you're loading 30, 40 kilobytes of CSS for like a one page brochure site or like, you know, design system designed to work with a more robust app. Do you, do you have that same danger or is there something about the way those work under the hood now where, you know, there's less a chance of, or they, they, at the bare minimum, they're not creating more bloat. They potentially help with it. Ideally, they would help with it in the sense that, let's say every team in your product is building their own button. And not only they have to create, write the code, but they also have to write the tests and write documentation for it. And let's say you multiply this by 10. Not only that's going to add to your bundle size, but also it's going to add to your, uh, your, your test suite, which is going to take longer to run. And you create just more dependencies and more stuff, not only for your users, but again, for, for you as a developer team. Let's say you have a design system now. That design system is going to take the burden away from those 10 teams to build that component. And instead, you have one button they can all use the same. Hopefully, your design system is pretty well configured to take advantage of all the new Webpack features or Rollup or whatever you're using. And when they include the button, they will only get the code in their bundle that they need. Let's say those 10 teams are using the same button. Now, instead of 10 times the amount of code, they have it once. Now, let's say a team does not 
or a product does not use the majority of your components. They only want, let's say, uh, they're the login form team. And they, they, they only need some text, some boxes, maybe some forms, obviously, a button, and they don't want to have to, to import all your accordions, all your carousels, all your whatever you have in your library. Well, again, I'm just going to go back to the way you build your component library. If it integrates well with Webpack, then you get tree shaking for free and people can import just the modules that they need. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what modern JavaScript tooling is giving us. And I love that because you don't have to ship those behemoths. And again, an all or nothing situation happens where people don't want your design system because it just makes your app way slower uh, at boot time at least. So I'm glad you brought that up because performance is super important. Cool. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. Let's move to um, to picks. Steve or Amy, do you guys want to, one of you want to start us off? I can start if you want. That'd be swell, Steve. Thanks. Yeah. So my dad pick this week is Cedarwork Playbeds. I just got one of these for my son. It has a climbing wall and a slide. It's a bunk bed. He's gone crazy about it. He's telling all of his friends. He wants to invite everybody over to play on this bed. This so, looks awesome. Yeah. I kind of want one of these in my room. <laughs> yeah. That was my first thought. I was like, I can just get rid of my bed and get this instead. <laughs> um, oh, this rad. Yeah. So he loves that. And then my other pick is going to be Azure's container instances. I've been playing with that a little bit, trying to run uh, Minecraft servers. So that's been pretty interesting. I'm liking it a lot. Next thing I'm going to hit is the uh, Azure functions, see how they differ from like AWS and stuff. Those are my picks. Nice. Amy? Sure. Uh, so it's been a while since I've picked something from... There's uh, all these like different awesome lists. So this one is awesome actions for GitHub. And it's just a list of like a ton of different ones. So I'm going to go with that for this week. And that'll be it for me. Awesome. So on my end, I have a couple this week. The first, and I should have mentioned this last week, but um, I just finally got a chance to watch the Free Meek mini documentary series on Amazon about uh, rapper Meek Mill and his kind of in and out 10-year legal battle with um, prison system and probation. If you like hip hop, um, if you're an obnoxious social justice warrior like I am, um, you'll find it really interesting. If you're neither of those things, it's probably not going to be your cup of tea, but I really, really enjoyed it. The soundtrack is awesome too. If you like hip hop and you like Meek's music, then uh, it's just, it's a really well done documentary series. On the developer front, um, my buddy, Andrew Borstein linked me to this really awesome article by um, Bastian um, Algier. I'm almost certainly mispronouncing his, his name called Simplicity 2 that talks about how our 
ironically, since we're talking about um, lots of dependencies in a design system, but how our reliance on build process, processes and dependencies makes maintaining the work that we do really hard, especially if you don't touch it for a little while. So if you step away from a project and then come back to it, you suddenly find that everything is broken. And the first thing you need to do before you can actually just update that little bit of CSS that you want to change is get your designs or your build system working again. Um, and how maybe the house of cards we've built around our development process isn't all sunshine and roses. Not that there aren't some benefits, but that maybe potentially the costs slightly outweigh those benefits. So people who know kind of me and my particular brand of web development won't find it at all surprising that, that um, this article resonated with me, but um, it really, really did. So uh, Kaylee, do you have any picks for us? So I've got two picks. Back to what you were just mentioning, I'm going to pick Dependabot. It's a company that was just acquired by GitHub and it opened pull requests to uh, update your dependencies. And you can, with a GitHub action, you can auto-approve their <laughs> the PRs of the bot, which then knows to merge it into your code base. So your code base essentially stays up to date when it comes to dependencies. And uh, that's lovely. And so we, we use it on a few projects at Shopify and I love it because I used to be doing that manually and it's not fun. My second pick is I've been building command line tools over the years and it's never been fun. Actually, it kind of uh, was miserable experience, especially with getting the, the console output to look like something. So you could use stuff like chalk and but you always have to play with the process STD standard output and blah, blah, blah. And it's not, it's not fun. So the other day I was looking for how to build a, a command line tool that really looks nice. I got uh, stumbled upon this thing called Ink by Vadim Demedes. So I'm going to post the, the link in the show notes, but this is, this made my life so much easier. And for the first time I felt like building a command line interface was nice and pleasurable. So thank you, Vadim. Awesome. So Kaylik, thank you so much for being on the show. This was, this was really great. Um, if people want to learn more about you, visit some of the cool stuff you're building, where can they find you? Kaylik on Twitter, K-A-E-L-I-G. And uh, that's pretty much where I post and rant about web development, design systems, design tokens, you name it. Awesome. We'll make sure we get a link to that in the show notes for everybody. Cool. So everybody, thank you so much for listening. Steve, Amy, thanks for being on the panel this week. Kaylee, thanks for joining us. And um, we'll chat with everybody again real soon. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Bye. See you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.